And good evening, or good morning, or good afternoon, depending where you are listening on this rotating sphere hurtling around the sun at 18 and a half miles per second. Don't feel anything, do you? Oh, we're also moving around the galaxy, and the galaxy is moving toward the Virgo cluster and all that stuff. Tonight, we're going to try something a little different. We're bringing in one of our team members, our imaging team, my good friend and colleague for many, many, many years. In fact, we may actually try to sort out on the air how long we've known each other. It seems forever, but it's it's been, you know, maybe 20-some years. This seems to be uh, the month for reconnecting with, uh, with folks that uh, I haven't talked to in a very long time. Like earlier in the week, I was asked suddenly to do uh, Clyde Davis's uh, – Davis's – Clyde Lewis's show, um, Clive Davis was a music arranger at uh, CBS. Clyde Lewis, and we did two hours earlier in the week, and he's got an awful lot of affiliates. And so I noticed tonight that we have a lot of new people listening to The Other Side of Midnight. Welcome. In fact, let me give you a kind of a precie of what this show is all about. Back many years ago, in fact, it's been uh, 2015 when I first started doing this, and it's now, what, three years later. In fact, our first show, our first formal show, uh, was three years ago tonight. We weren't really on the air yet, but we did a special on the flyby of the New Horizons spacecraft uh, going past Pluto, which was on the exact 50th anniversary of the first flight Mariner 4 that NASA sent flying past Mars back in 1965. So the anniversaries kind of pile up. The, the, the kind of theory behind this show is it harkens back to an old-time radio show. For most of you out there, it, it would be old-time, back in the 40s and 50s on WOR out of New York City, the Long John Nebel Show. In fact, we have borrowed directly the theme from Long John Nebel for this show. Because what, what John did was he didn't do interviews. I mean, he hated interviews. He had a big green felt table up in the studio there at WOR. And they would have the local delicatessen, I forget which one's very famous New York deli, uh, in the middle of the morning cater breakfast. And a whole bunch of folks would be invited in. They would troop upstairs to the studio They'd sit around this big green felt table with microphones and food kind of scattered around, and they would just talk. They'd just have wild, exotic, extraordinary conversations. Remember, it's back in the 1950s, you know, the era of um, paranoia and uh, House hearings and Senate hearings on un-American activities and stuff like that. But John led a, an incredible panoply of guests uh, from an incredibly diverse background in conversations that were literally out of this world on WOR, Clear Channel WOR, 50,000 watts across the United States back in a time when the airwaves were not as crowded as they are now. And so that was kind of the template that I wanted to go for. So tonight I have a guest of one, but we may be joined in the third hour by other members of our imaging team. I know... We're going to have Keith with us, Keith Morgan. We're going to have Kinthea, who is on on deck, you know, working out, doing what she does during the show, which is to make sure everything is working correctly. Chris Bell is our faithful audio file, 
who's making sure that my audio, my music sounds as good as it can sound with the equipment that we have. We had a, a, an equipment conversation earlier this evening, and I said, well, if you want to donate, hint, hint, folks. If you ever want to donate to the other side of midnight and get us better gear, like I need a Telos, I really need a $2,000 Telos. And that that's a pretty you know big chunk of change. There's a donate button on the homepage. So if you have any idea of throwing us money, it will be put to a very good use. Well, let me let me kind of give the context for this show. Um, earlier in the week, NASA came out with another press announcement, and then the uh, science press kind of ran off in bizarre directions. For instance, I'm reading one here. If you go to the other side of midnight.com, this is how the show works, folks. For all you who are new, you go to the website, the other side of midnight.com. You click on that. And that will take you to our homepage. Click on tonight's graphic, which is that gorgeous amalgamated view that I created many years ago of the Mars Global Surveyor black and white image of the face lit from the left, lit from the west, amalgamated with the color image, the only color image of the pre-dawn darkness face taken in, 19, in no, 2003 by uh, Mars Odyssey. And I amalgamated those two together. So you can see clearly on the right-hand side, if you go to the graphic, that um, that's not a mesa. That's not any rocks. Those are geometries. That's glass. That's, uh, that's real color, which we've you know, dimmed quite a bit because it's overwhelming on the original. And I put the two together to show that whatever this thing is, it certainly is not your average Martian mesa. So you click on that graphic which says Ron Gerbron, and for um, July 14th, this is the 50th anniversary. Um, no, it's the 53rd anniversary of the first flight to Mars. You click on that, scroll down to my items under radio with pictures, and item number one, NASA may have discovered and then destroyed organics on Mars in 1976. Now, that headline is just, oh, come on. Talk about clickbait. Yeah, you know, NASA may have discovered, and they should have put in there, inadvertently destroyed. Because it really makes it seem like some humongous conspiracy theory. And as Ron and I are going to talk about tonight, no. It's the limitations of how you pursue this stuff. How you actually search for life on other planets. I mean, there isn't really a kind of a good definition of life still after centuries. So the technology, as we're going to talk about, that NASA used back in the Viking mission in 1976, the two orbiters and the two landers, was very, very, very primitive compared to what it is now. And part of that process of looking for life involved a technique called pyrolysis. Not, not paralysis, pyrolysis. Pyre meaning fire, Okay like pyramid, fire in the middle. Um, pyrolysis involves taking a sample of Martian dirt, putting it into an oven uh, on the spacecraft, and heating it. And the idea is that if you have Martian soil at like 150 below zero, because Martian temperatures even during the day are very, very cold. Ground temperatures are really, really cold. So you want to heat it up and you want to drive off what they call the volatiles, meaning as you heat it up in this pyrolysis chamber, like a little tiny, tiny, tiny oven, as the temperature gets higher, various 
organic compounds, so the theory went, would be driven off uh, into the airstream where they would then waft up in the chamber by convection and sensors in that chamber would then detect and analyze the chemical composition of the compounds being driven off by elevating their temperature in the pyrolysis chamber. Well, what nobody knew then, and we've only figured out recently from one of NASA's much later missions, the Phoenix mission to the close to the North Pole of Mars a few years ago, I think around 2008, maybe 2009, that time frame, is that the Martian soil contains a chemical compound um, which when you heat organic materials in concert with that compound, you wind up destroying the organics. It's an inadvertent chemical process. There was no way to know that this, this, uh, um, this chemical compound, which is called a perchlorate, meaning it's got lots of, of chlorine in it. There's no way of knowing before Viking that that compound would be strewn across the, the reddish dusts and sands of Mars. So the innate design of one of the instruments on Viking that was designed to be part of a chain of evidence that would tell us we were looking at life or inorganic non-life, part of that logic chain in the, in the technology and in instrumentation, because of the chemistry of the Martian soil, inadvertently actually destroyed what they were looking for. And it's only in later missions, this is why you have later missions, as the technology got better and the, uh, the uh, inventory of what was found in the natural occurring Martian soil became more complete, that they're now able to look back and uh, look at what might have been 40 years ago. Because, well, let, let me wait and talk about the rest of this until we get Ron on. In fact, why don't we do that now? Let me scroll down to the bottom of the page, and I will read you Ron's magnificent bio. Let me read you what Ron sent for me to read tonight to all you folks. Ron Gerbrandt, proudly uncredentialed polymath with a lifelong fascination with archaeology. Now, as a radio host, what do you do with that? Well, what I do with it is I bring on Ron Gerbrun, my friend and colleague, and say, Ron, what the hell have you been doing with your life, and why are you on the other side of midnight tonight talking about Mars? You're on the air. Okay. Okay, here we go. Uh, yeah, everybody wants everybody wants a bio. Um, okay, the only intro to that is that one reason – I am going to give it to you, but one of the reasons that I tend not to is that I have a lot of very um, – negative verging on dismissive things to say about a lot of academia and as soon as you attack them on their turf which is not really my intent just i just want to point out bad science then they say oh well by our standards you don't rank above an empty tuna can because you didn't go to this <laughs> school or you didn't do that thing and so it's you know they completely instantly i think there's training for this divert the argument uh away from the subject matter and i believe richard has faced a certain amount of that in his time as well um but okay uh i was raised on a farm in um pennsylvania and very old place lots of artifacts to find you know i got tired of collecting arrowheads rather quickly 
there was a bore, there was a bricked up cave that I always wanted to investigate, but it was like halfway up a cliff wall. And, um, I really couldn't get anybody to go along with me because you kind of needed to hang from a rope. So I didn't do that, but I did go to, um, probably one of the best secondary schools in, um, well, in the world, I don't know. You have to, you had to take intelligence tests and I mean a full couple days worth in order to get into their kindergarten. So I, I assume that they, yeah, yeah. And it's, and the place is run by Quakers. So at least they didn't beat us, you know, but it was the same school that Piers Anthony attended, by the way, if anybody's familiar with that author's name. He was there before I was, but I've noticed him referencing in his author notes before. Um, and I'm sure they've got lots of famous graduates. But the thing was, um, I when I got to my junior year, the, one of the schools that I was looking at was uh, St. John's. And their program at the time involved what they called the 100 Great Books program. Mm -hmm. It's not too different from what Britannica used to sell, but they had this whole list. And I looked at it with my faculty advisor and he said, well, this looks like the kind of sort of untucked shirt place that you'd like to go, but um, what about this book list? And I said, well, I've, I've read all but two of them. And so I decided, okay, that wasn't going to work because I hadn't gotten that much out of a lot of, the, a lot of those anyway. But um, so, you know, I um, enrolled in more normal channels and I ended up with 12 years of college in various schools and I walked away from it because one, it was costing a lot of money and I wasn't seeing anything back for it. Um, so you were at this early and, age aware that, that higher education, at least in the United States, is more like higher programming as opposed to really education. That's a very good way to put it. I was, uh, and the, uh, the problem was that um, you get tired of people telling you how smart they are. That's the last thing that you want to hear unless you're an egomaniac. Uh, it's ridiculous. And um, the, I, I know there were running bets because of some of my class grades. There were running bets on uh, placed on me by some of my teachers over the college boards. Uh, and um, my supporters won a lot of money, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> always been proud of the fact that I uh, that I this was the old college boards, which were like uh, 140 percent harder than what they use now. Oh yeah. And, that's not my statistic. I mean, I've heard that elsewhere, and they, I think the differential might even be bigger. But it, all I know, all I know, yes, I was one of those creepy people that sits there with an hour to work your pencil, and I'm finished the whole thing in 15 minutes, including double checking the answers, and then I sit there and tap my pencil because they won't let me out of my seat. Um, you see that in movies sometimes. Yeah, yeah, people do that. Uh, but um, considering some of my some of my class grades. Said, See, I told you he was just getting bored. Well, anyway, so on to uh, on to college, and I went overseas for a while. And um, the um, after a while, I realized that I wasn't going to get what I wanted out of it. It didn't matter whether I went to Berkeley. Um, I just told Richard a little while ago. I was I was living down near Stanford because I couldn't stand Berkeley, and uh, I was commuting up there and. Um, I probably went to more classes at Stanford than I did at Berkeley. Um, at least I had better ones, but even though I, even though I was a ghost, so I did a lot of that. And so there's 12 years of college there with a whole bunch of schools. And I, 
ended up not finishing it. I just walked away from it. I said, this is crazy. I'm running out, I'm running out of money. And it was a lot cheaper then than mm, it is now. A we lot cheaper. Oh, my but, God, yes. Well, let me put this into perspective. You're going to have uh, everybody get your defibrillator ready. I mean, a lot of it was free. And um, the um, I had a couple of scholarships that had gotten burned when I came out here. But that's kind of personal things. It had nothing to do with me. It was family stuff. And um, I would have been better off if the school had let me go when I was like 13. And I was, I'd been one of those creepy little um, brush cut uh, nerds that they enlist at places like um, Michigan State. You know, they have to buttress the uh, figures generated by their sports teams. And so they, they go out and they look, for, they look for people they perceive as brainiacs. And then they, they make a big press deal out of it. And this is all great. But I was, I mean, hell, my social skills aren't that good now. So I, I don't know <laughs> what they would have been like if I'd been one of those people. Um, but, Ron, yeah. it seems to so, me that, that your background, like mine and like a lot of other people that have worked on this project, this problem, you were yeah. a generalist in training and you were smart enough early on to realize, like I did, that standard academia mm -hmm. was a dead end. That, as I said a moment ago, academia trains mm -hmm. you to be a good worker bee. It no longer trains people how to think, how to kick over the traces, how to think outside the cliched box, how to, how to, in other words, really put data together that is so confounding, so bizarre, so bewilderingly weird that nobody in academia will dare touch it because, for one thing, it would mean they got zero money in grants, and in academia, grants are everything. So that's why we are exactly. impecunious citizen scientists outside of the mainstream and why we're doing cutting-edge work, which is going to change the history of the human race. So well, that is prologue. Let me ask you this question. I ask this of a lot of my guests. <clears throat> what was the sure. first time when you looked around and said, wait a minute, everything they're telling me is wrong? Um, that's a good one, but I, I was, I probably hadn't had any dates yet. Let's just say it was pretty early on. Uh, it, it was pretty obvious to me that most people were, were kind of making the, making things up on a daily basis. And that's always been one of my more irritating features. I'm, I'm very blunt and honest. And I've had, is that is that an autism thing? Gee, maybe I'm autistic. I don't know. I just, but I can't, I can't stand liars or lying, which is odd because if that's your mindset, you're very, very good at it. You know, I mean, well, I saw statistics that, the other day that something like ten or twenty percent of papers now being submitted are rejected by the reviewers behind the scenes because they're just outright lies. They're just made up stuff. Yeah. Oh, I'll tell you something else they do. This is because um, uh, I've read literally this is all your fault, Richard. I've read thousands of papers in the last couple of years relative to this project, and partly because uh, the last actual academic class that I had was in probably 1978. So everything I learned was obsolete by the time I started checking back on it. And so I had to relearn everything anyway. So why should I give them credit for it? But see, that's the beauty um, of the internet. One of my biggest, uh, yeah. um, what's what, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, sticking points, uh, uh, canards, whatever term, 
is that modern folks, modern kids, let's, let's talk about kids, let's talk about kids going to school. They have no idea how incredibly lucky they are because you and I, when we were coming up through school, would have given anything for a day or two with the internet. Oh my God, what we could have figured out if we'd had the internet. Now we have this oh, global, instant, universal, multicultural, multi-language, multi-dimensional library where if you look hard enough and know how to look, part of it's in knowing how to search, you can find almost anything if it's ever been digitized. And increasing amounts of libraries, the, uh, you know, the big Google <clears throat> legal suit notwithstanding, are, are being digitized. So the World Wide Web is worldwide. It's deep in time, deep in – and when, when, they, when they digitize some of the original tomes, the original research, again, you have this panoply of human knowledge in front of you. So to me, the only limitation now on knowing something is the strictures of your professors who are only there because they have to teach X number of hours in order to get access to grant money. That's not a way to teach yes. people how to learn. How to really learn. And you and I came up when really, really learning was first and foremost, and for me anyway, it still is. And I, I, I take it from what you just said that it is for you. So let's let's cut to the chase. We've got a whole bunch of new people listening tonight. I don't want to give them the yes. wrong impression of the other side of midnight. So let's jump in. Let's 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 context what we're gonna talk about first. We're gonna talk about the unthinkable, the heretical, the thing that academia will not touch yet over a screaming red-hot poker, the idea that humanity is not alone, that we have kith and kin next door on Mars. Maybe they're still there. We don't know. We know now from the data that they used to be there, and they used to be us, at least some of us. So where do we want to dive into this incredibly controversial idea that Homo sapiens sapiens actually is very diverse, has multiple branches, and those branches exist not just on this one little planet, but they exist far beyond. And the nearest place that they exist or existed, if we're going to be a purist here, would have been this beautiful, gleaming, brilliant, you know, orange dot getting closer and closer every night in the southeastern sky, the planet Mars. Uh, you want my opinion? Yeah, sure. I just that's, realized. That's no, why I, I just have you on the show, Ron. I want a lot of your opinions. Oh, because... oh, good idea. Yeah, all right. Here's one. Um, the uh, speaking to the images, I wasn't going to start with this one, but it's it's this is about all it's worth, and it's pertinent to that. If anybody wants to look at image number nine, okay, let me tell them how to get the numbering. There, there are new people, aren't you? Go to the other side of midnight.com. You click on the graphic for tonight's page. It says Ron Gerbron. For July 14th, that will take you to the guest page, to Ron's page. Scroll all the way down. We have two sets of items, my items and my guest's items. Scroll all the They're all labeled. They're all got numbers. Scroll all the way down to number nine, which has the evocative title of <clears throat> fish. Go for it. Whoops. Whoops. No, I – oh, I could uh, – I, no, I want to talk about fish, but not now. That's uh, Let me see. I'm looking at them on the – on a screen here, the original. Oh, it's image seven. I'm sorry, I don't have my glasses on. Okay, seven. Go up to Pathfinder. Sorry, and sorry guys. It's just, there you go. And I did something which I don't usually do. I'm I'm uncommonly 
uh, reticent to do spot uh, spot enhancements and lots of little boxes and arrows. I think they're more distracting sometimes than helpful. But there, uh, I pulled something out of there because I just couldn't believe it. And I've had that picture a long time. I thought, well, let's use it. It's it's you're looking the they called it the imp. I think the little before they gave it other names the the little rover. Mm-hmm. Anyway, it's looking back at the lander. It's looking back at the lander. And you'll notice uh, over to the left. Yeah, the rover on Pathfinder was called Sojourner. And the kind of white blobby looking object at the top of the image is the lander on which the little Sojourner rover was uh, attached. And those fluffy things are airbags that were deflated. Right. And they landed this thing and it bounced and then they deflated it and the lander emerged. And then the the rover was driven off on a little um, uh, runway you know, on two sides of one of the solar panels, the ramps. And then they came back and they took a look at the lander. You can even see the American flag up there above the round medallion on the side. It's very faint, but you can see the red, white, and blue Mm -hmm. kind of faint there. And now you've got a big circle with an arrow pointing to the dark side of a rock in front of the lander on the left-hand side. What do you see? Yeah, and I... uh uh, I see a uh, side view of a frowning um, human head uh, that could be, I'd say, near Neanderthal. I mean, I, I want to say something about Neanderthals and Denisovans and so forth in a second. But the um, just, you know, what people think of your caveman-looking thing looks like a rough-and-tumble early human uh, or a representation thereof, obviously, glaring at the rover. It, well, we know that Pathfinder landed on top of a bunch of structures, probably punctured one, at least one of those airbags. Um, they're sitting right on top of a pile of stuff. That's why they didn't take a lot of pictures right around it. But, um, uh, you know, there it is. And I'm going, hey, looks like it to me. So that's in, you know, does that say something about when? Because that's my major focus, especially for tonight, was the timelines and if it, you know what what people were there. The people that I see that I've found in the um, um, frescoes and carvings and statues and what have you are very contemporary, modern-looking, sapien sapiens-looking humans. And that guy's not. That's why it caught my eye. And uh, Richard uh, could verify that I'm actually more skeptical than most about something that is purported to look like something in particular. <laughs> and that to me is, is kind of a beyond question. And uh, I'd be interested in what anybody else thought of that. But, you know, there it sits. And we didn't get any more. No pictures from the neighborhood so that I could look for context, which is something I'm very big on. But, um, you know, there was there was that. So I think they've known pretty much what's going on all along. And that's helps direct their efforts towards not letting us know. But it, it gets it got ridiculous 20 years ago. It's gotten silly now. You know, one of the other pictures there is um, from an early, um, relatively early MGS or Mars Global Surveyor image. And it was the first one that convinced me. I was, I wanted to believe, I internally believed, but I was looking at the pictures and looking at the pictures, trying to figure out how I could clean up what was uh, was obviously wrong with them and see what was there and see if there was anything there. And then I ran across that um, MO903640 
which is uh, it was a high lat- high latitude uh, area somewhere in the picture was terrible. So it was only when I was able to properly enhance it and get rid of all the artificial streakiness and so forth you can see what's there. But there's three of the four panels are from there. And you'll see a bunch of little thready, sketchy things like broken spaghetti lying around. And they turned out to be the um, structural remnants of, uh, as far as I can tell, domes. Tell you what, we're at the bottom of the hour. We're at the bottom of the hour, so hold it there. My guest this morning is Ron Gerbron. He's one of our imaging team. He's one of the authors on the book that we're working feverishly to bring out in the next few weeks. So we catch the wave when Mars suddenly explodes into public consciousness. Um, I've known him forever. He's a generalist. He is definitely not uh, a fan of academia. Anyway, you're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. of the other side of midnight be sure to catch our complete live show every saturday and sunday night at 9 p.m pacific midnight eastern for a full three hours of this kind of exploration and be sure to visit the other side of midnight.com as you listen so you can follow our special radio with pictures guest page simultaneously that can see our hard-working producer specifically prepares to illustrate the topics discussed each show why because there is vital additional information on that Radio with Pictures guest page that I assure you will immeasurably enhance your understanding and enjoyment of what our guests are describing. I mean, would you rather listen to a guest talk about NASA images of ancient artifacts on Mars or simultaneously be able to follow the official NASA images showing you, as you're listening, the ruins? If you'd like to listen at your convenience to all our shows, including our unique Radio Pictures feature, please visit midnight.com and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. Okay, what do you get with your Club 19.5 membership, besides helping the show literally stay on the air? Well, first of all, you will exclusively, this is not available to the general public, enjoy our enhanced ad-free podcast, courtesy of Chris Bell automatically downloading all the latest The Other Side of Midnight shows directly to your favorite podcast device so you can listen when you want to. Further, as a full Club 19.5 member, you will gain exclusive access to our The Other Side of Midnight 24-7 chat server, what I can't help calling the Open Hailing Frequencies Room, which is available only to members 24-7. Now, during the show, that's where you will find other 19.5 members and sometimes even members of the bridge crew, my guests, and even me uh, when I have time. 
Regardless, you can always relay live questions to me during the show just by going to the open hailing frequencies room. Of course, when we're not on the air with your 19.5 membership, you can visit our club 19.5 radio archives anytime and download all our shows directly to your computer, which will automatically provide you a screen size that allows you to really examine the remarkable images Kintia posts for each show. Okay, <clears throat> here's where I need to get kind of super serious. Club 19.5 is how our show is currently solely supported. In my hopefully not vain attempt to keep commercials <clears throat> to a minimum, if you're concerned about keeping us on the air, if you want to hear information that has been vetted far more than perhaps any other show, the best way to ensure that is to join Club 19.5 and get your friends and family to join too. And if you don't know already, when I drop by open hailing frequencies, you can even ask me directly what the ultimate meaning is behind 19.5. Literally, the most exclusive club in the world. Please join me and my interesting guests on this very stream every Saturday and Sunday night at 9 p.m. Pacific, midnight Eastern, and be sure to come back and listen to our live three-hour shows. Thanks for listening, and now... Back to the show. Welcome back on this Saturday night, the 14th of July, Bastille Day. Interesting anniversary regarding Mars, because it was on this night, 53 years ago, that I was doing a radio show coast to coast with, uh, on a station called WTIC in Hartford, Connecticut, with my friend Dick Bertel. And we did a live five-hour show connecting to JPL, which nobody had heard of in those days, where we talked about during the flyby of Mariner 4 with a panoply of interesting guests, including an old friend of mine, J. Allen Hynek, who's no longer with us, about the implications of life on Mars. And we thought that night was the beginning. Oh, how naive we were. We thought that night we were going to actually find out from NASA, our friendly local neighborhood space agency, that there was, in fact, life on Mars, and they would then proceed to tell us through subsequent years and subsequent missions, the outlines, the details, the history. And instead, Ron, we've gotten nothing but yeah. uh, kind of uh, being stonewalled. I mean, the whole idea of life on Mars is so politically charged. It's so incredibly incendiary from the mainstream point of view, from the NASA point of view. And we didn't find out, I didn't find out until decades later, this thing called the Brookings Report. But anything having to do with life beyond the Earth is a taboo subject, even for the most stringent and scientific of agencies. And I, this also descends down into the academic world because, of course, academia now gets most of its funding to do anything from government. So basically, government has a stranglehold, and you only get to hear and see what they want you to hear and see until competition raised its head. Beginning in the later years with other government space agencies, which have, shall we say, more 
relaxed uh, strictures on what they are willing to show us. And now, of course, we have this whole burgeoning field of private missions. Elon Musk wants to take colonists to Mars. Uh, there's a Google X Prize uh, that kind of wasted away, but the, the the private players, the private enterprise players who are going to the moon with spacecraft anyway are going to be launching the first one, I think, later this year. So we're on the cusp of something really interesting, which is finally real unsanitized data. Right? Maybe? Hmm. I don't know. Meaning? Oh, uh, I don't know. I don't know whether they'll let go willingly. Yeah, I'm not sure that it's a, um, since there isn't anything to be scared of. I mean, in the, in the incredibly wise words of Woody Harrelson, if you can't do anything about it, forget about it. You know, there's a whole bunch of interstellar stuff going on. I'm quite sure that makes the universe of something like that movie Jupiter Ascending look downright friendly. And, uh, but it's not interfering with us. And I think their main fear has been they, they didn't want to become unwitting players on whatever stages are out there until they could march in heavily armored and overpowered and uh, ready to take on anybody. That's not really much of an exploring spirit. And um, so I think it's more the academics. So I do not hate them. Don't hate any of them. But I was going to say when you were talking about those peer-reviewed documents before, uh, someone else said this. I heard someone else say this, and I can't – I don't know who it was, but they, they deserve the credit. But he said there's a um, – uh, said anybody that thinks that that really means something should just go look up the definition of peer-reviewed documents. See what it actually means, and you realize that what you're doing is presenting your theories, opinions, deductions, whatever, to a panel of people who are after the same grant money you are. <laughs> and so they don't want to place you above them. In other words, a new discovery, eh, forget about it. You know, it's to say, but if you say, well, this supports Richardson's theory of this and, and Thompson's theory of that, and you go, oh, okay. All right, you know, it was a, he signed off on that. Oh, he quote. Oh, and he quote. He quoted Doctor So and So. You know, and that's how they get their papers passed through. And the 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 proof of that is that you will find an occasional paper, unlike a lot of people. I actually read the damn things. I mean, I don't <laughs> take a lot of the math, but uh, the um, the a lot of times I noticed this in Scientific American many many, many years ago, which is on the fringes of that same uh, document. Uh, landscape that uh, a lot of science-based articles, that especially ones that have equations piled in there, if you actually analyze them, a lot of times they make no sense at all. They know this. They know nobody's going to figure it out. They're just going to do what people do with the peer-reviewed documents, which is look at the abstract at the top and what's called the conclusions down at the bottom. And that's all they'll actually read of the paper. They'll just check all the citations to see if they got mentioned or their uh, their august offices of their school or something like that. Well, that's and, very uh, human because you, because Ron, I know when when people hand me yeah. a book, you know, they've written a book on on you know something related to what we're talking about. One of the first yeah. things you do as a human is you go to look at the references. Did they mention you? 
And then you go to look, did they mention you properly? Meaning, did they say nice things about you? So that's all very human. Yeah. But you're saying that this really is an industry where it's a, it's a competitive industry, and the industry itself, academia, is designed to exclude frontier cutting-edge ideas because those by their very nature normally would rise to the top and get funded, and those are the what are attacked because they don't want those funded because it would mean less money for the other things that they're already doing. Yeah, you're just frozen out. They're not. Uh, they're not usually overly hostile about it. I mean, when I tried posting at academia.com, I um, the um, I got in there because I think it has something to do with search history. If you're looking up a bunch of certain exotic things, then all of a sudden it's okay for you to access someplace like that. And so I tried posting some rather mild uh, commentaries on things, and I literally, I literally got a posting: "We don't want you here." What? Yeah. And I thought, oh, okay. Well, you know, your underwear is dirty. I'm leaving. You know, this is uh, the, uh, I mean, I didn't leave, but I stopped posting there because it was pointless. And what I was getting to is that I have found some papers. I should have kept a pile of them that uh, they will follow all the proper steps and protocols. And they'll, you know, they'll properly lay everything out. They'll, they'll accurately cite their sources and uh, detail their uh, research parameters according to the testing that was done by somebody else on some other thing. And this is why this relates and background information. And then down, hidden down in the bottom of the paper where they know that none of the reviewers are actually going to read it, there'll be like a paragraph or two that is completely anomalous. It's something else entirely. It's their actual theory that they have. And it has no tie-ins, really, with the bulk of the paper. And I've seen a number of these, and I finally realized what they're doing. They're sneaking the stuff out there. Because once the thing gets peer-reviewed and passed, then it gets cited. It gets passed around. They can say, well, I've got peer-reviewed documents on this and that. And when they cite themselves, they'll pull out the anomalous paragraphs, as, uh, which were sort of enveloped in there. Kind of like a Terminator has to be covered with skin in order to time travel. You know, this is the, uh, the Terminator core underneath the skin suit. Um, and they'll quote that as if that's what the paper was actually about. And all these other people that signed off on it are um, uh, accepting it or supporting it. And it's kind of guerrilla warfare, but it's, uh, yeah, yeah I've, I've seen several of those. So I suspect that it's more common than I re- would ever realize. But it's, yeah, it's become a mess. It's become a mess. I mean, to be honest. Uh, you read a lot of that kind of documentation yourself. Unfortunately, you know, and, um, yes. Yeah, and um, and you read you read the heavy evil stuff with all the math equations in it, which, like I said, I skim through. I'm lazy. Uh, but um, you also look at other stuff, and I'll bet just like me, you have more perky memories of things like that old um, uh, AnLab uh, column in Analog Oh, I uh, love that. many years ago. Tell people what, what you're talking about, because this is one of the really cool things that John uh, uh, set up in, in Analog Magazine. Yeah, it was a it was alternative view, and uh, they would... Um, have the wilder the theory was, the better, as long as it was internally cohesive. 
unless it was, you know, clearly ludicrous and meant to be laughed at. And, um, you know, stuff, imponderables, things that couldn't be straightened out. And, uh, yeah, I, I, things spark my memory of articles from that all the time. And, I mean, that was the company in which you published your Europa uh, assessments uh, way back then. And, voila, that was more accurate than anything that was out there contemporary with it. It just took us 30 years uh, to, you know, for you to get public acceptance of it. Well, they still don't attach so, my yeah, name we, to the idea that there's stuff living in the oceans of Europa. But if I live long enough, maybe they'll get around to it. See, I'm wondering how much of this, Ron, is yeah. due to an imprint yeah. from above, thou shalt not publish on certain topics, a la Brookings, and how much is yeah, just some, in, how much is just inherent academic uh, scaredy catness. Is that a word? Because if they're too far outside the box, they won't get the grant money. In other words, it's all down to who's paying the bills. Uh, yeah. yeah. Well, tell me that you're, you're an astronomer yourself. I mean, by inclination, uh, how many times have you run across an, a, a mainstream astronomer type that maybe you're talking and you're saying, oh, you should look at this, and they won't look. They won't. I had that. I had that happen to me on Capitol Hill, with uh, someone we talked about earlier tonight off the air, Carl Sagan. Uh, mm-hmm. Right after I, you know, discovered all this stuff at Sidonia, um, I got to mm-hmm. be friends with a guy named Dr. David Webb, who was a member of President Ronald Reagan. Remember him, Ronald Reagan, uh, Space Council. Oh, yeah. And he was an advisory. He had direct access to the president. I thought, oh my God, this is going to be like hot knife through butter. We package up the Sidonia stuff. We give it to David. David takes it over to the White House. He sits down with Ronnie. And as the president of the United States, the president, of course, it's his NASA. You know, hint, hint, Donald, it's your NASA. Now you can do anything you want with it. And I thought it would be, you know, step one, two, three. Well, as part of this process, one day we were testifying on Capitol Hill. I forget what committee. And uh, actually, we weren't. It was it was Sagan, and it was uh, the head of the Planetary Society, uh, whose name escapes me, and it'll come back in a minute. Anyway, Sagan was there Zuprin? to test a Sagan. Was it? Is that Zuprin? No, 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 no. He was never part of the Planetary Society. This oh, was the uh, Planetary oh, Society. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can see uh, John John Friedman. I think it was named John Friedman. Anyway, he was an engineer at JPL. And he was the kind of um, ranch foreman of the Planetary Society. Uh, Sagan and and the former director of JPL uh, were kind of titular heads, but the day-to-day management went to uh, Lewis Friedman. That's his name, Lewis Friedman. Okay, so Lewis Friedman is oh, there sure. to be with Carl to testify about planetary budget and all that in front of, I guess, one of the space committees. And David and I were there, just kind of observers. Um, so we're watching Sagan testify in front of this House committee because all the uh, financial bu- bu- bills originate in the House under the Constitution. And after it was done and everybody cleared out, you know, I, we had our shot, and I wanted to show Carl some of these incredible images of Sidonia that <clears throat> people like Dr. Mark Carlotto had carefully prepped and had uh, enhanced at the Atlantic Sciences Laboratory in Boston – and I remember taking them down because you had to sit in the gallery and then you could come down on the floor after the after the uh, session was was over. And I, 
you know, gave them to Carl. I'm sitting there and I'm showing them. And he says, Lewis, come on over, take a look. Friedman, this is the manager of the Planetary Society, JPL engineer, really good engineer, by the way. He literally put his hands, Ron, over his eyes <laughs> and would not look at the pictures of Sidonia. It reminded me of, of you know, see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil, that kind of thing with the monkeys. Or another, yes. you know, historical analogy, you know, the cardinals who refused to look through Galileo's telescope. Louis Friedman <clears throat> literally would not look at the enlargements of Sidonia, which showed clearly, even on the Viking data, artificial geometry that Carl was fascinated by, but Friedman would not even look at. And right then and there, I said, oops, Houston, we've got a big problem. Well, you hire somebody that has the viewpoint you want pushed, even if it's not yours. You know, if it's that's to your advantage to uh, push things in a certain direction, then you find somebody that'll do that. Okay, by the way, I have, really just, I have just sent to Kintia a stunning crystal clear color panorama of the Pathfinder landing site, which shows all ah. kinds of amazing artifacts. This came to me by way of a source in Germany, not out of NASA. It's NASA data, but NASA would send its data around the world to other investigators, and I got this through a back door out of Germany. It's the right color. The skies on Mars are blue. They're not that, uh, you know, that uh, kind Hopefully of saffron crap that uh, we've been living with for decades and decades. Um, and they show that Pathfinder landed in the midst of an ancient ruined city. All that geometry, okay. all those things, it's all there in this panorama. So as soon as Kintia gets it posted, uh, I, she'll send me a, 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 a kind of a heads up in the uh, Skype window, and I'll let everybody know they go to theothersideofmidnight.com and click on tonight's graphic for tonight's show with Ron. That will take you to the guest page and scroll down. It will be item number four in my items when she gets it posted. So in the meantime, until that's ready, where do you want to jump in? You've got a whole bunch of images here. I want to get through them. Um, eight is oh, good. labeled number uh, eight is not uh, is labeled favorite faces. Should we start there? Yeah, I did that. Be uh, okay, but uh, first, this is just this is the same thing you do. But I said there's yeah there's there's two loose ends I uh, want to take care of before I forget. One, there is another color early picture of the face. However. Uh, when Malin was still releasing, grudgingly releasing some pictures, uh, he released a f uh, color version of the, um, and it wasn't, it was a different picture, but it was the same, basically the same shot as the classic Viking ones, you know, the, the same general area, but it was, it was in full color. However, it's one of the things that got me started on the right path toward figuring out how to fix them because I noticed that they had fiddled with it in a, in a really peculiar way. The, um, you know, one of the way, one of the channel splits you can do to a color image, don't worry people, I'm not going to get too wonky, but you know, you can, you can do RGB or you can break it up as hue, saturation and lightness, or you can go the, uh, what the Europeans love so much, which is the CYMK, but that's the, uh, four things, but it, with the hue, saturation and lightness, the saturation, uh, set, Panel, uh, what does what Adobe call them? Uh, channel Alpha um, is 
upside down. And you can see it because there's like this red shadow up near the top of something that, you know, is actually down at the bottom. <laughs> they were flipping the channels. And I said, well, why are they flipping the channels around? I mean, there was no practical way that you would end up with that unless you did it, in, did it intentionally or you were doing something that involved the potential that you could make that mistake. You wouldn't normally, there'd be no point to it. Um, the, uh, and I said, aha. So that picture is no longer available. If anybody can find it or has a, has a copy of it, I've, I've lost more, uh, oh, I've lost more hard drives than um, friends over the years. And, uh, <laughs> yes, you have. The, uh, yeah, the only copies that I have are, uh, you know, long gone. Until MRO, Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, the only color yeah. that I ever was able to find was that pre-dawn color view of Sidonia taken by Mars Odyssey in October of 2003. And it, the sun wasn't even up. And what was stunning was right. that certain objects on the landscape were glowing brilliantly when the Martian skies are really pretty drab and dull because there's not much stuff in the in the air to scatter light. And it's so bright that when you dim it down to where it's normal, you see there's in, this incredible, and it looks to me like, like um, glass geometry on the eastern side, which is still in pretty good yeah. condition compared to the western side, which has really been beaten up and eroded and all that. But in fact, if, if you go to Radio with Pictures, it's item number three in my section. I've, I've got a two-side composite. The left-hand side is the Surveyor Odyssey uh, comp composition that I made. And the right-hand image is a uh, perspective shot that Keith Laney did from MRO, uh, the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, which is kind of looking from the chin up toward the uh, eyebrows. And there's a color strip across the face. They didn't get the whole face in the color strip in the MRO imagery. They got a part of it, and this is just ordinary, you know, color, daytime color on Mars, reddish sands, and the bluish side on the night side, on the on the shadowed side. Anyway, we don't have a lot of time. I mean, time is really yeah. fidgeting okay, let's, terribly. Yeah, let's, so let's jump into let's, the to the to the heart of what we're going to talk about, which is human beings, at least part of us, seem to not have always been on this planet. We had a period of some kind of sojourn on Mars, and then we came back. Our great, 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 as I say, grandmothers came back. And what we're going to try to do tonight is to lay out the data which supports this, and even more important, the timeline of when this could have taken place. So where do you want to enter into yeah. the timeline discussion? Okay, well, here's the thing. Here's, here's our split. Uh, I look at it this way. The, uh, the timeline stretches and stretches and stretches, and your viewpoint on it and your your analysis tends to start with the dinosaurs and end at the ice ages. And my, mine kind of starts at the end of the ice age and comes up to date from there. So they, they kind of dovetail around there, but I, I'd, um, so that'd take me to that infamous image number eight. Um, the, uh, everybody will recognize some of what's on there. That's the best picture of the Sphinx that I know of. Uh, it was taken in 1850, um, and um, before they started trying to repair it and made it uh, made it almost unrecognizable. If you look at the oh, what a gorgeous picture! Okay, let me tell everybody how to get there. Go to the other side yeah, of midnight.com. No, 
click on your graphic tonight. Um, uh, it says Ron Gerbron in bright big letters. Click on that graphic. That will take you to the guest page. Scroll down to number eight in Ron's items. Click on that. And then you can even click on it again. It will make it much bigger. The left-hand side of this oh, yeah. image is a bunch of guys standing around on the Sphinx. Um, this was taken when? Isn't that lovely? Oh, it's gorgeous. Oh, my God. Yeah, look, at, look, look at the stellae at the, between the paws. The yeah, the inventory stellae. The inventory right stellae, yes. Yeah. yeah, with uh, half of it falling off. You can see all yep. about it. And it's, uh, the, uh, well, anyway, the, uh, if you look up at the head... Uh, and remember, this is just the center section. It, it spreads out a little bit on both sides, but I needed to uh, fit it on. Ron, Ron, the, Ron, Ron, stop, 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 what? stop. Am I seeing what I think yeah. I'm seeing? <clears throat> in, the, in, the, in the mayonnaise, which is the headdress, on yeah. both sides, am I seeing oh, the, the outline of two other faces? Well, you, in, well in, you're clearly a profile? genius. I haven't uh, I haven't mentioned that to anybody, but yes, that's that's oh exactly God. what I see, and I think that this means uh, something because see, I this tend is to, so uh, so Martian, and you got to tell know, people what, what so, we mean by that. What we've been finding, folks, all over Mars in the Curiosity imagery, is that Martians were incredible artists. We've got statues and faces and heads and carvings and all that, which are going to be filled in this book in stunning color. And what we find out from Martian yeah. art is they did something like they also did with the big face on Mars. They would put many images in one image, like multiple stories in one piece of art. And the Sphinx in this 1850 ancient terrestrial image looks like it's got three faces. The face we're familiar with looking at us in the camera. And on the left and the right, the nemes, which is the headdress, the Egyptian name for the headdress, appear to be two yes. other profiles of primitive-looking, almost like pre-hominid faces. Yep. This is okay, astonishing. Here, uh, this is mind-blowing. Where the hell did you find <laughs> this picture? It's commonly available. Oh, my this, God. I've uh, never seen it. Yeah, and it's, uh, the, I mean, it's tinted back in those days since every uh, photograph was a unique item. There were, you know, tinting was pretty common. Um, yep. The, uh, they, you know, they, could, they didn't have negative films, so they weren't cranking out duplicates. Uh, okay, well, as to, the fa as to those faces on there, see, this is the thing. Even within the circles of Egyptologists and so forth, I mean, I just read a paper by Robert Schock. The, he just came out, just got published on line anyway a couple months ago and his latest thought is that the uh the that bit of goiter around the neck of the um sphinx is a remnant of one of those rings like the egyptians like to decorate the necks of cats with you know mm -hmm. those sort of stretching rings and uh i i think that i righteously disagree with him i think he's got a zoro's hat problem which 
can be explained some other time. But uh, the uh, you know he does he does wonderful work. I have great respect for him. But I think he's I think he's found himself a rabbit hole because he's so convinced that he has the end game. Uh, my feeling is that the back end of the Sphinx was not originally there, and it was never intended to be there. And when you look at this picture from this perspective, you can see those ridiculously overstretched paws where the, the guy's standing in between them. Mm-hmm. Uh, the water of the Nile, and most, most mainstream agrees with this, once lapped right up against the Sphinx. Well, you can see where it lapped right up against it because there's that clear bulge at a sort of a baseline. And that would mean that those paws were like three or four feet underwater much of the time. Oh. They don't have a lot of tidal action on the on the Nile. It's very quiet, but right. it was a boat dock. Yeah. Okay. And so it should be the uh, it was a boat dock is is what was going on there because what they used for anchors tended to be a big stone donut. It was easier to cut a hole With in a the hole middle. In the middle. Thread your... Yeah, we found a bunch of those around the world. Ancient, ancient anchors. Yeah, yeah, big stone donuts with holes in the middle. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed, and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll have access to a private chat server that member used to chat about the show during the show, and you will have a direct channel to post a question that will be read on the air to the guest. And you'll have a place to post questions during our open hailing frequencies. We realize that not everyone wants to call in live, and this gives you an easy way to participate in a live show without having to participate. Club 19.5 members can use this private chat to talk about the shows, ask questions, suggest new guests, And I may even pop on from time to time to answer specific questions. Also, the entire bridge crew is in these participating chat channels, so you can interact with them as well. You'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out. <laughs>